I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, you are very welcome to The Tonight Show. Coming up, as allegations of rape and sexual assault surface around comedian Russell Brand, we get the very latest on this story and ask if similar behaviour is evident in the Irish entertainment industry. And as Ireland's college accommodation crisis continues, we hear from the UCC student who has a daily six-hour commute. Plus, Thomas Jeff. Neil Martin responds to Leo Bradker's comments that the government made the wrong call in relation to the easing of COVID restrictions in 2020. Complex enough, and I don't make sort of, uh, how would I put it, um, simplistic sort of conclusions uh, in respect of any particular set of decisions that were taken throughout the entirety of COVID. Well, this weekend, shockwaves were sent through the British entertainment industry when a joint investigation by the Sunday Times and Channel 4 detailed allegations from five women accusing comedian and actor Russell Brand of rape, sexual assault and emotional abuse. Well, joining us to discuss this further is comedian and founder of Comedy Safety Standards Ireland, Eve Darcy, the managing director of the communications clinic owned Tomás McDermott, and down the line. We're also joined by journalists Enda Brady and Alison Morris. Enda, I want to go to you first. Um, we know that Russell Brand has strenuously denied these allegations, but the Met Police confirming today that they have been contacted about a separate alleged sexual assault that may have happened back in 2003. What else have they been saying today? So this was a brief statement, really, that came out from the Metropolitan Police just before tea time, and they confirmed that a woman went to them yesterday with an allegation of sexual assault against Russell Brand in 2003. She alleges she was attacked by him in Soho, in central London. Now, Soho has a lot of film and TV and radio studios, so it is somewhere that he could possibly have been working around that time. The allegations in the documentary and in the Sunday Times newspaper related to the time frame from 2006 until 2013. So this 2003 allegation is significant in that it happened before what we knew at the weekend. So, and the fact that the woman has now gone to the Metropolitan Police, they will investigate this. Presumably at some point soon, Russell Brand will be spoken to by police. And they did issue a statement, of course, on Sunday saying that if anyone had any information or anything they wanted to speak to the police about relating to Brand to get in touch. And it's clear that at least one woman now has. And the Times and Sunday Times who carried out this investigation along with Channel 4, they've also said that they have been contacted by several women with claims about Russell Brand, but they haven't been investigated yet. 
Yes, so more women have now come forward off the back of all of the blanket coverage. I mean, he was on the front page of every single newspaper in the UK today, Here, So it's a huge story. He was a massive personality here. And then year by year, you know, he dwindled away. He wasn't getting TV work. He wasn't on radio anymore. Um, he had his stand-up. And it, he's been a master of reinvention. So he has all these different social media platforms. He's recreated himself as a wellness guru here in Oxfordshire, where I live. He, his house is about a mile and a half up the road from me. And he has been very, very successful in terms of redeveloping himself and, and creating all of this online content. Now, crucially, this evening, he normally does a broadcast on his platform at 5 p.m. He didn't show up for that. His stand-up comedy gig tomorrow night in Windsor, that has been cancelled. And the end of the, the shows that he was doing in Plymouth and Wolverhampton, they too have been pulled. And in the last couple of hours, his publisher has said that they will pause work while all of this uh, investigation by police and others continues. You mentioned others there. There are other stakeholders here, other perhaps television companies, broadcasters who have questions to answer about perhaps previous claims that had been made and how they were investigated or handled. Bring me through those particular uh, investigations. So the BBC have launched an internal investigation. Uh, it's significant today that one of the women... She's now in her 30s, but she claimed that she had a relationship with Brand when she was a 16-year-old schoolgirl and he was 31. And she has claimed today that the BBC would send a chauffeur-driven car to her school to pick her up to take her to Brand's mansion. So that is obviously extremely damaging for the BBC, that allegation. Senior executives at the BBC will be... I'm sure, very, very angry about all of this because he's caused them problems before. You'll remember the BBC Radio 2 show that was pre-recorded with Jonathan Ross where he left a message on the mobile phone of Andrew Sachs, the man who played uh, Manuel in Faulty Towers. That resulted in Brand getting the boot from the BBC and I think BBC executives probably thought they'd heard the last of him and his behaviour. So they're now investigating. Channel 4 are looking back at all the time he spent working for them on the Big Brother format, which he uh, presented the Big Brother's Big Mouth side shoot program. And also a TV production firm is looking back on his time with them as well. So we have all the media investigations and a lot of people in the comedy industry here saying that this was an open secret about his alleged predatory behavior and alleged abusive behavior towards young women for years. But I think the most significant thing to have happened today is one woman going to the police. All right, uh, let me just bring some of that uh, to my panel here. Owned Moss uh, McDermott, as we said, um, Russell Brand came out in a video online on his YouTube channel, seriously refuting these claims on Friday night. But what's been very interesting, I suppose, is, as Enda said, he has repositioned himself as this wellness guru um, over the last couple of years as his popularity waned. But he also positioned himself as this real critic of big pharma and of mainstream media. Do you think there was a conscious effort being made by him to push this narrative that would allow him, I suppose, to 
delegitimise some of the claims that were being made against him? I don't think he's a strategic mastermind, so no would be the short answer to that, Kira. I don't think that he had developed this persona online that would give him protection for the day of reckoning that came over the weekend. What I do think, was, though, was that he looked at the very rich data he can get from YouTube to find out what works and what doesn't and what his audience wanted and what they didn't like. And I'm sure then he began to observe that some of his more maybe a conspiracy theory posts uh, were getting much more engagement and that led him to it so that ultimately he began to feed the the audience what they wanted to eat which has led to this that then that leads him to a point where he has an audience who are skeptical and who have naive skepticism in relation to the mainstream the elites and we saw that within his statement on Friday evening the and it's a playbook statement. we've seen used before haven't it's we? room 101 standard operating procedures for statements delivered by people like Russell Brand so what we have is the attack on them the others so he cited that there was perhaps perhaps another agenda at play. He talked about how his followers had warned him in the comments section that he should be watched, you should be careful, uh, Russell, they're on to you, you're on to them, and you need to be very careful. But you also saw Donald Trump doing a version of this where he talked about the deep state. We saw Andrew Tate when he was arrested for sexu um, uh, sex trafficking in Romania, where he talked about the matrix being after him. So it's a playbook. The frustrating thing is it's very effective because when you look at a statement, you have to ask, well, who is it for, i.e. who's the audience and what is it setting out to achieve. His, Russell Brands, was for his followers, for his viewers, and to create this sense of scepticism and distrust in relation to the accusations. And what we see from the reaction is he has certainly achieved that with some of them. Yeah, we have seen that reaction. We've seen that reaction online. Alison Morris, um, you've written today in response to those online who have said, why now? Why are we only hearing these concerns and these allegations? If they were indeed true, they would have come forward before now. What's your response to that? Well, I suppose the Channel 4 um, dispatches was called in plain sight for a reason because these women did come forward before. You know, the signs were there. Um, Danny Minogue gave an interview where she said he was a predator who wouldn't take no for an answer. We have had other women, such as comedian Catherine Ryan, speak out about how there was a predator in the industry who she had confronted. We know that several men who worked alongside Russell Brand also confronted him, and numerous female members of staff, from makeup ladies to wardrobe women to runners, all made complaints about him and have said that they were told they could be moved elsewhere, they could be moved onto a different production. They were moved around rather than him. Some people said they were used as pimps to pick, to pick young women up out of live audiences during that Big Brother era. And those audiences were mainly made up of young students who were contacted through local universities. I mean, this is not, and as, as was said and as was just said, this one of the 16-year-old girls said that a BBC car was picking her up from school to take her to a grown man's house. So all of this did happen. It was reported. Nobody was paying any attention. I do think that uh, Russell Brand is quite strategic. He is, above all things, he may be many things, but he's certainly not stupid. And he knew that his time was up. His style of comedy was outdated. The Me Too movement had put an end. Just the way if we've seen comedy from the 1970s now, we would, you know, curl our toes in horror. When you see those clips of those old Russell Brown stand-up shows, they're horrific. They're not funny. They're misogynist. They're vile. You know, they're they're boasting about his treatment and appalling treatment of women. He knew he couldn't get away with that anymore, so he moved into the the online grift but, section Alison, of society. But Alison, if you say this was being spoken about and this was being known known widely in the industry, then what were the complexities and the challenges that 
prevented journalists bringing these allegations to the fore before now? So the, the investigation by the Times and by Channel 4 has been four years in the making. So journalists were working on this quite some time ago. I do think that people who worked, and I don't mean the, the, the people who worked in those low-paid jobs, but I do think that the producers, the agents, the people who enable this behaviour have serious questions to answer. That includes people in the BBC, that includes people in Channel 4. I mean, Russell Brown was sacked numerous times from numerous jobs, and we were told he made full productions at the cost of tens of thousands that ended up being too graphic to ever make it on air. You know, this was a widely known secret. People thought maybe they could monetize this bad behavior. They cast it off as laddish, as banter. Um, and so there, there, there are serious questions, I think, to be answered from those higher up the tree. But also the question is, is young women working in that entertainment industry? I mean, we actually heard a live radio broadcast where he was interviewing Jim, Jimmy Savile, where he offered him up his personal assistant and said he would bring her to meet Savile. Savile asked, could she be naked? He went, I'll arrange that. This is a professional woman trying to do her job. And this was on her, live on her. So the fact is this was known, but these women are clearly did not know that other women existed. They felt that they may have been alone in this. And we do know how brutal the judicial system can be when it comes to women reporting allegations of rape, especially against very powerful or influential men. OK, let me just go to uh, Eve here in studio. You talk about an open whisper network within the comedy industry, and perhaps it exists in the television industry as well. Um, what do you mean by that? To be honest, I think it probably exists in a lot of industries and a lot of different sectors in the arts. Um, what I mean by a whisper network is it's something, it's a very informal thing where you're basically just kind of warned about certain problematic bookers or promoters or, you know, different things like that. Um, or comedians, you know, just like, don't gig with that person, don't be in the car with that person, you know, whatever it is. Um, and, you know, you can be told this by male comedians as well as female comedians, you know, it's not just, you know, I certainly, I've experienced of, of being warned, you know, early on about certain people who are still working, you know, in the scene. And the idea that this is not dealt with, is not confronted, is it because there's a fear out there that if you are the person to bring this to the fore, that your own, perhaps, career will be damaged? A hundred percent. this reluctance to come forward comes from? Absolutely, there's huge fear. Um, like even to be honest, like me coming on this show now, like I'm going to lose gigs. I'm not going to get booked for certain things because I'm like problematic, you know, like I'm like troublemaker. You know, that's kind of how you're branded if you're just trying to make the scene safer. And that's all we're trying to do, particularly, you know, comedy safety standards. We're just trying to make the scene safer, better working environment for people. Um, and by so that, the idea that some of the behaviour that's alleged here, Eve, is historical you know, belongs to a time maybe prior to the Me Too movement. You would disagree with that? No, it's happening still now, for sure. Um, and just more needs to be done. And this is the and thing what as does well, it look like? Well, so to be honest, I think like people with profiles, they would be very helpful. Like if they step forward, if more kind of male comedians could be more allies, that would be very helpful as well. Um, maybe, you know, for audiences, maybe for them to be a bit more conscious about who they go to. Um, because like, you know, for example, like there's definitely protection with a profile. Like I don't have a profile, so I don't have that protection that that and the privilege that that gives. So, but at the same time, you know, I just kind of really felt very strongly that just something needs to be done. Things do need to get better. Um, and just to say like, you know, the national helpline is 1800 77 just if people um, are affected by 
by this, um, so just to contact that. And we'll put up the link to our own uh, helplines at the end of this item. Yeah. Um, just to pick up on a point that Eve made there, and it's something that I heard uh, Russell Brand saying in an interview with Lorraine, where she asked him about, you know, being a womanizer. Does that legitimize your behavior? And he said, people will let you be, and not was the word that he used, as long as they are making money out of you. Is this sort of a, a moment of reckoning, I suppose, for the entertainment industry, that that cannot be uh, a reason, a, any justification for allowing behaviour like this to go unchecked? Well, that ethical question has always been there of if somebody's making money, do we excuse their behaviour? And one would have to presume the answer to that is no, you don't excuse it. But we have heard, we're hearing, for example, other women are uh, coming forward. But the, the pattern of that is now not too dissimilar to what we would have seen with Bill Cosby, for example, where there was an initial accuser, then there was a number of others, then the dam burst. Similarly with Harvey Weinstein, we saw Rose McGowan coming out first, then there were a few more and then the dam burst. You would wonder, again, uh, is a similar um, pattern going to happen with Russell Brand? Well, we've heard another phrase being used a couple of times, Kira, which is big questions need to be asked. I think big questions need to be asked now around Alphabet, uh, Google and YouTube and whether they're going to continue to partner with Russell Brand, where he is one of their biggest uh, attractions on YouTube. I think yeah, because we see, we see these investigations being carried out by Channel 4, yeah. by BBC, we see the theatres that have booked Russell Brand cancelling his shows, mm. um, issuing refunds, promoters ending relationships with him. We see no response from those who currently There's no, host then, his platform where he refutes these allegations. Which is interesting, though, because on the Dispatches programme, they never mentioned that they had asked the big tech companies what their reaction was in relation to Russell Brand's uh, performances and his own behaviour. So I think you have the questions for YouTube, you have the questions for Rumble, you have questions for Meta and Instagram, which is again going to be what is it that you are going to do? Because they claim that they're not the publisher, but clearly they, they, they are again hosting this person on their platform and they have a set of rules that traditional media um, don't apply and traditional media have rules of defamation, libel, truthfulness, uh, lack of abuse, uh, which we're, we often see on these big tech platforms. So I think they've, they're the ones with the big questions to answer. Um, Eve, um, James Cleverly, the Foreign Secretary was on, in the UK, was on Sky News yesterday and he said we've got to be so careful when we look at industries, particularly uh, entertainment, he also mentioned politics, where there's sharp differentials in power, where there's this power imbalance that can be abused. How do we protect people where there is that imbalance? Yeah, to be honest, I'm not sure, but that is, power dynamics is absolutely key. key to like this. that is it. Yeah, that's absolutely it. And, um, you know, like certainly for us in comedy safety standards, you know, we're trying, we partnered up with the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. They provide training for the arts sector. Um, we've also linked with Safe to Create. So, you know, there is, a, there is a lot being done, but to be honest, it really is up to the people with the most power, whoever they are, and they know who they are, uh, they need to step up and they need to, you know, take responsibility. All right, look, we're going to have to leave that there for now. Uh, but thank you both for joining us. Just to let you know, as I said, you can contact Helplines on virginmediatelevision.ie forward slash helplines. My thanks to Eve, to Owen, to Enda and to Alison for joining me. Up next, we're going to look at the continuing college accommodation crisis and speak to one student about their six-hour daily commute.
Well, third-level students have started returning to college amid a continuing accommodation crisis in the country. Student Taylor O'Leary made this video diary for us, outlining her own experience of commuting to college in Cork. Hi, my name is Taylor and because of how bad the accommodation crisis has got, I have to commute from Waterford to Cork three days a week to do my master's degree. So my day started at quarter to six this morning, but the only things I had to do was wash my face, brush my teeth and put on the clothes I picked out the night before. So the night before I made myself a lunch and a breakfast so I wouldn't have to stress about making food first thing in the morning when I woke up. I plugged in everything that I needed so I could just throw it in my bag and I wouldn't have to worry about anything dying. I left the house at five past six and then the bus arrived on time, shock her, at 20 past six. So the bus journey did take about two and a half hours. Obviously, I just said I left at 20 past six and we didn't arrive in Cork until 8.45. Even though the bus arrived on time, I was hoping someone lit a candle for me going through that Cork traffic and obviously they didn't because we arrived in Cork at 8.45. My lecture was supposed to start at nine, so I knew I was gonna be late. I had drafted an email the night before about how I was going to be late. This is me panicking, waiting for the bus, but I eventually got on the 208. I didn't end up arriving at UCC until 20 past nine. Um, so that made me like about 15 minutes late for my lecture, which was really stressing me out. I didn't want to be the one person that was late on the first day. But I explained the situation to my lecturer and she didn't mind at all, she was very nice. So I had a three hour break after my first lecture and unfortunately I couldn't go home during that big break like students normally would. So on that break I collected my student card and I walked into the city just to get myself a coffee. My last lecture ended at four o'clock so I ran to the bus stop to get the five past five bus. By the time I got on the bus, I was so drained. My back was so sore from carrying the bag around all day. There's me having a little cry on the bus, drama queen. And I got home at about half past seven. So I'm just in the door now, it's half seven. So that's about a 13 hour day completed. I feel like now, since it's half seven, I'm gonna go make my lunch and my dinner. I'm gonna have to go have a shower and pack my bag again for tomorrow. Make sure everything's charged. And by the time that's done, it'll probably be half eight, I'm hoping, and I'm so wrecked, I'm just gonna fall straight asleep. Started the day off really well. Got up before my alarm, I was awake before my alarm, I was awake at 20 past five. I was, you know, I was excited. Little did I know, little did I know what was lying ahead. Ooh, waking up at 20 past five, it's gonna be so much fun. I'm not gonna sleep in and enjoy my little bit of sleep that I'm gonna have now, no. I'm gonna wake up early for some reason. First lecture was grand, it was nice, you know, and then the second lecture, the stress of doing a master's hit and realizing how hard the course actually is and the um, imposter syndrome you get when you start something new anyway, where you're like, am I cut out for this? Am I smart enough? Am I the stupidest person in the class? I was, I will be dropping that module because I definitely was the stupidest person in that class. That was all hitting along with the fact then it was four o'clock when that lecture ended. I had to run to the bus with this big heavy bag on my back to try and get there for five past five. Then just on the bus back, I just cried and cried. I just can't believe I have to get up and do this again tomorrow. My whole evening is gone now. By the time I get everything done, I'm just gonna climb into the bed, maybe play a bit of Animal Crossing. I've tried looking for some accommodation for two or three nights just to kind of break up the journey. But Nothing that's reasonable because I'm paying my rent here and I work in Waterford and I have to keep my job here and I want to live here when I've done my masters so I don't know what to do. I was texting a woman today about accommodation and she was like oh I can accommodate you for two to three nights and she was like oh well 400 euros a month is not enough for me. Like I understand if you're making a living off being a landlord but like I can put myself in her shoes and be like yeah 
You're like, you can't live off 400 euros a month. Like, I can't afford to pay 400 euros in Waterford and 400 euros in Cork. Like, I don't know. We'll figure it out anyway. It has been a tough day. It's been so long. I can't wait to get into the shower. It's starting the day off really well. And then, down in Alpha. That was Taylor O'Leary uh, speaking to us there. I'm joined by Fianna Fáil MEP Billy Kelleher, Sinn Féin TD, Mairead Farrell and Zayed Barguthi from the Union of Students in Ireland. I'm going to start with you, Zayed. How common is Taylor's experience there, having to commute these long distances to be able to go to college? I mean, the Department for Further and Higher Education put it quite nicely in the Funding the Future Options paper this year, um, projecting that there is 30,000 um, oversubscription to purpose-built student accommodation. Now, this is an option of accommodation that only 19% of the student body pursue, yet there is still 30,000 people with rejections coming their way for that accommodation. That's regarding the upcoming year, which started today. Um, yet there's no options um, actually on the ground for resolving this issue whatsoever. So how many people are going to find themselves then in Taylor's position where you simply just have to do your best to try to commute? At least 30,000 people. 30,000 students. At least. And the impact that that is having on them? Every possible aspect of the student experience is impacted by that. You saw in the video there, you have... Your life as a student is much more than waking up, taking a bus, going to class, taking a bus back and sleeping. I think being a student is a transformative process. I think we have managed to give students a student experience that focuses on development, on extracurricular activities, on social aspects. And I think that's all being affected quite severely from just the, the, the lack of responses on this issue um, and just the complicity of of our leaders in it um, and the, the, the constant um, mistakes in our policy, our unwavering commitment to neoliberal approaches with this issue that is clearly a national crisis affecting tens of thousands of people. Um, Billy Callagher, as Said said there, you know, you're meant to have these milestones in your life, you're meant to have these transformative experiences from secondary school into adulthood and that means for a lot of people going to university, living independently and enjoying everything that uh, college has to offer, never mind actually just trying to commit like Taylor is doing to a master's degree without having to get up out of her bed at 20 past five in the morning and not get home until half seven that night, being late for lectures and all of the added stresses. You see her there crying in the VT on her way home. And all of this is happening under Fianna Fáil, Minister for Housing's watch. Well, yes, it's happening. Uh, it's happening uh, right across the entire country. So it's not just a, a, an isolated incident in, in Taylor's uh, case. Um, so he's right. I mean, you know, there will be thousands of students that will find it very hard to get accommodation. Um, campus accommodation is a critically important part of this uh, component and it, we, you know, there's no doubt there's a dirt of that but also in terms of the private landlord sector and making homes available and, and rooms available to students as well that's an issue that you know, has to be addressed too so I mean there are some efforts being made by government but clearly the, the difficulty here is that we just don't simply have enough housing stock either in student accommodation or in the private landlord uh, sector yep. as well but, that simply is the biggest difficulty we have But I suppose people will be looking as you as a member of the Fianna Party wondering yes. that's your responsibility that's your party yeah I'm, I'm not, I'm not you're, you're not an observer here. I'm not denying any responsibility here and I accept responsibility for it but the point is like that we just simply do not have enough houses homes accommodation apartment 
for students either on campus or in the private landlord sector as well. Now, there are some efforts being made by government, but clearly there's a massive increase in the population. There's an increase in the student population. We had come out of a recession where we didn't have enough housing being built for many, many years. But we are playing serious catch-up. But that is going to impact very negatively on students in the short and medium terms in terms of their experience. But the government has brought forward some policies in terms of rent a room, encouraging landlords or people to make a room available for a student. It's, you know, it's a sticking plaster uh, effort, but at least we're trying to get rooms available to students uh, in, in, in this uh, particular academic year as okay, well. OK, so look, at the government says, yeah, we do accept we're failing here, but we are making some efforts, Maria Farrell. Good enough? Well, in 2018, the government and the department identified that by 2024, so next year, they'd need an additional 21,000 student beds, right? And now Zaitz told us exactly um, the figures that the department released, that they are actually now um, needing 30,000 extra. And that's only what's been identified by colleges in terms of oversubscription for accommodation. And the reality is, it's not only impacting on people in terms of their actual quality of student experience and that, but it's actually locking people out of third level education because it's costing thousands extra for people to be able to try and find some kind of accommodation. There's complete lack of accommodation. Yeah, not not all been, of those 30,000 haven't found accommodation. Oh, I'm not, saying, I'm not suggesting that all those... But the reality is that there are a lot of students out there or there's a lot of people who were doing their Leaving Cert last year or are going into Leaving Cert year now and who don't have the opportunities um, that should be available to them to go and study whatever course that they feel if they want to go to university, go and study the course that they want to contribute to this society by studying. But the reality is that they don't have that opportunity because not only do we have, obviously, um, the contribution distribution charge, which is, uh, costs a lot of money, um, the cost of living is very high, but then also this accommodation crisis, something that was identified for, um, in 2018, six years ago, that there would be need to 20,000 extra beds. Simon Harris would say that, you know, they're doing an assessment of all of the demand for college places or college accommodation places around the country and that they have, for the first time ever, sort of gone into partnership with college to try and bring 1,000 student beds on stream for 2024. It's, it's a drop in the ocean, but it's a start. But they literally identified in 2018 that they needed 20, over 20,000 additional beds. We also need to look at the affordability aspect. I was today in um, Trinity, uh, I met with Trinity Students Union, where they staged a protest last week in relation to unaffordable student accommodation. And they were saying what they need is, they need beds, they need a place to sleep. That's what students need right now. Um, and they need it quite, literally right now. We also see the issue, and look, did been, say, Simon Harris did say, out of those 1,000 beds that will be delivered next year, there has been a commitment by the colleges that they're going to ring fence some of those beds and make sure that they're available below market but, rates. But let's be frank about this discussion as well, right? We don't actually, haven't seen an affordable student housing model actually be established by this um, government. But I just want to say one thing, right? Over the last number of weeks and over the last number of months, I've been travelling around to different um, colleges. Today I was in Trinity and in Maynooth. Tomorrow I'm going to UCC. And I've been talking to students, I've been talking to students' unions. One of the issues that so many students have come up and spoken to me about is the need for digs regulation. So many young women have come to me and they've said, look, and, and absolutely so many fantastic places in terms of digs that people have had. But there is also the issue of, I've had young women come to me, they say they can't lock their door at night, they can't use facilities and that kind of thing. And I have to say, as a young woman myself, not as young as them, I wouldn't feel comfortable sleeping in bed if I can't lock the door at night. I just wouldn't. Do you agree with that, Said? 100%. I mean, the, the issue of Diggs legislation has been voiced by the Union of Students in Ireland for years at this point. And as you said, this is being 
pointed at, uh, at as, an, as a solution on the long term for this issue. And as I said it to Ms. Minister Harris, I thought that was an oversight when I saw it. We are a country looking at a 65 billion euro surplus by the end of next Isn't year. Isn't there a danger that if we over-regulate that, that it's going to push some of those people who provide digs accommodation out of the market? It could be, but we're offering a €14,000 tax relief at a taxpayer monies. I think that also comes with certain protections. And can I just say that I'm currently working on digs regulation. Of course, it needs to be workable, it needs to be manageable, and it needs to, to, be, to work for everyone. But we obviously do need to... If this is a key issue that is coming up um, with students, and if there's issues of safety and, and, and concern, and that's safe, but it's also for those people who are renting out their room. And so many fantastic people across this state have been have had to welcome and open their doors because students have had no other choice. Yeah. And it's it, been a fantastic it, it, it is a good scheme to encourage people to open up their, course, their homes to course. make rooms available, but obviously there has to be standards and yeah, to and ensure... This is it. In, in terms of that other affordability issue that you mentioned, uh, Simon Harris was out today saying that he's going to be pushing for tweaks to this uh, rent credit that might be available to uh, students so that more and more are going to be eligible and that he'd also like to see that rent credit doubled. Given the fact there's been such poor take-up of that rent credit, why does the government think that's a solution? Well, because we know that there is lots of rooms available that are not being used in, in, in our cities throughout the country. And I mean, you know... They, they... We're talking about the rent credit for oh, those my... who are run... Yes, yeah. yeah that, I mean, there's an unusual thing in Ireland where we don't actually make all the applications available, to, uh, you know, for ourselves in terms of, of credits. Um, and it's something that obviously has to be advertised more and more to ensure that people actually avail of it. I was amazed when I saw the figures that were very, very poor take-up, you know, in, in view of the crisis that we are facing. And what has the government done to I mean, like, increase that take-up? Well, I mean, like, well, well, obviously, if you increase the credit itself, it makes people more. It makes it more attractive for people to take it up in the first place, but um, I, I think they have to obviously advertise it. Student unions and others will have to get involved. Political groupings, even debate like this. But certainly, you know, if you increase the credit, well, certainly you increase the attractiveness. You may increase the take-up rate. All right, we're going to have to leave that um, conversation there for now. My thanks to Zaid for joining us. We have lots more on the Tonight Show after the short break. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. burrowcom slash ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Well, speaking in New York earlier today, Antishak Leo Radker stated that the wrong call had been made in relation to the easing of COVID restrictions during Christmas of 2020. Take a look at this. In relation to uh, the first Christmas lockdown, um, like I think on reflection, um, both Neffet and government made the wrong call. Uh, Neffet 
proposed one form of reopening, which would have meant a lot of social interactions in private houses. Uh, government proposed a different uh, reopening plan. I think everyone involved in, in that time uh, should recognise that we got most things right and did a good job for the country, but nobody was always right. Well, that was the Taoiseach's take on that. Our news correspondent, Zara King, is in New York, where you spoke to the Tanishta, Michael Martin, today. Now, he was obviously with the Taoiseach at the time that these decisions were made. Is he in agreement with them? Some wrong calls were made, despite the majority of them being right? Well, it's interesting, Kira, because if we think back to Christmas of 2020, it was, in fact, Mio Martin who was the Taoiseach at that time. So uh, Leo Varadkar speaking today, saying the decisions made at that time, uh, he felt were the wrong decisions, and it was actually Mio Martin, because people might forget because they've been rotating, that actually it was Mio Martin who was the Taoiseach at that particular time uh, when that decision was made. I put that to him this afternoon. I said, Leo Varadkar has said that this was a wrong decision. What do you make of it? And here's what Mio Martin had to say. Complex enough, and I don't make sort of... Uh, how would I put it, um, uh, simplistic sort of conclusions uh, in respect of any particular set of decisions that were taken throughout the entirety of COVID. But I will be um, making my views known and giving my perspective to that evaluation because it's a bit more complex than what has been said so far. I'm conscious two books have been written about it, Richard Chambers and indeed Jack Organ Jones and, and Hugh O'Connell. Uh, and I may have to write myself, you know, because I would have a lot to say in terms of uh, structures, uh, you know, in, in terms of how COVID was managed, what, what lessons can we learn from it, uh, the different variants that came, and the Alpha variant in particular was uh, a newer variant at the time, which perhaps was not appreciated as early as, you know, as, as it was because of its impact was quite significant. So there's a lot in there, uh, and I have a particular perspective on it, but I think there's a review being set up. I think the reasonable thing to do now is to give our full perspectives to that and, and, and evaluate it properly. Do I take from that that you disagree with what Leo said today? I have my own perspective on it. Can I ask you, how do you get on with Leo Varadkar? Yeah, Are you good friends? Are you good <laughs> colleagues? Yeah, we're good colleagues, yeah. yeah. Are you friends? I get, I get on with Would it. you call him a friend? Uh, <laughs> yeah, quite. So we're getting on very well. Okay. I mean, you know, I yeah. don't. No, sorry, you threw me there. No, I mean, I'm no. Just ask, I'm just asking no, the, the relationships in government are very professional, uh, solid, no, I, I, and, and good in terms of the working relationship. Um, and um, so, like when you, you know, I went to holidays. <laughs> we, we, we don't go on holidays together. That's what you're saying. But the point I'm trying to make is that we get on professionally and we get on well, uh, and that's important in terms of the smooth running of government. I'm not sure he really enjoyed that line of questioning, uh, Zara. He might be writing the book, but he's not quite at the publishing uh, deal stage yet, is he? Well, I did ask him, Kira, have you got a book deal in the pipeline? He said, well, no, I don't, no. But he said, I'm seriously considering writing my account of this. So, Emil Martin definitely feels, and I asked him, by the way, if he's read uh, Dr. Tony Hula in the former Chief Medical Officer's book that's uh, coming out now. He said he hasn't had a chance to read it yet. Uh, but he definitely feels like he wants to have his opportunity to have his say. And the reason I asked him about that relationship with Leo Varadkar, Kira, is because uh, on another matter today, uh, that proposal that perhaps the first-time buyer's uh, support from the government would be extended to second second-time homes. Uh, when we asked uh, Micheál Martin about that this morning, we asked him, did he think that it would have an impact on house prices? And he said at the time, oh, no, I don't think so, that won't be an issue. And then when we asked Leo Varadkar an hour later, he said, of course, that will be a concern. So it seems like both of them are on different pages in terms of that particular policy. So for that reason, and then on top of this conversation about decisions that were made in 2020, I felt it was important to ask him today, how was their working relationship? As he said there, they don't go on holidays together, but he said uh, things are working out just fine. Um, Ireland is playing a key role here this week. Uh, 
uh, at the United Nations. The General Assembly will open officially here tomorrow. Joe Biden will be here tomorrow, the US President. And Kira, I suppose just in terms of the sustainable development goals, I suppose we said this to the Thonish and the Minister for Foreign Affairs today that, you know, these are 17 ambitious targets and in many ways they are lofty and they're ambitious. And I asked him, how is it that you expect then people back home to connect with these, you know, people who are going about their lives day to day, you know, to connect with these ambitious goals that are due to be completed by 2030. But I think it's broadly recognised that that is going to be very difficult to meet uh, that target. But Micheál Martin said today that there are a lot of things about those goals in terms of things like poverty, ending world hunger that can be relatable to Ireland as a famine nation, particularly when we talk about hunger. So he said that, you know, it is a communications thing, but that certainly uh, in order to achieve those goals, every citizen in every country really does have to get on board. Sarah King uh, coming to us live from New York. Thank you for bringing us that. Um, are we going to see more of this, you know, different perspectives, I think was the word that we heard there, coming up to the budget, coming up to the election, do you think, Maureen? Well, I thought you were going to ask me who my friends are <laughs> and who I was going on holidays with. Um, well, look, I thought that was uh, uh, quite an interesting uh, perspective, I suppose, as uh, the Tanish, I like to use uh, the term. But look, I mean, um, the main thing really is for the government in this budget is to actually deliver for people who are really struggling at the moment. We were just talking about the student um, housing crisis. We can be talking about the housing crisis and 12,000 homeless. That's what I want to see them working uh, towards. And I'd like to see them on the same hymn sheet when they're talking about that. Billy Kelleher, I think if you were asked, um, are you friendly with some of your Fine Gael colleagues, you'd probably just say yes. It's often just easier to say that, isn't it? Well, of course, it, defines, it depends on how you define friendly. But, um, you know, I mean, <laughs> professional working relationships are not unusual in politics. And you may not be best buddies with the person you're working with. That's not unusual in politics or in business or anything else. But uh, I suppose they're going to be more um, inclined <laughs> now to, yes. to push to differences between yeah. them coming up to the election. Aren't people going to see more of this? It, it would, it's probably a lot easier to say yes. Are you friendly with a person? But I mean, he was uh, talking from the professional perspective. Look, I mean, there's no doubt this is a budget. Um, you know, the next couple of weeks are very critically important, uh, as Maureen said, in terms of trying to set out uh, the targets that the government has set in its programme for government. More importantly, the response to the cost of living. But beyond that, let's be very honest, once the budget is out of the way, Christmas, you're into 2024, you know, uh, very quickly people start thinking of general elections as well. But I mean, we have to make sure that the government continues with the work as well. But you're going to see more, you know, um, rivalry uh, between friends <laughs> over the next uh, period of time. But in the meantime, it can't distract from the serious work of government. OK, who needs enemies when we all have such good friends? Good friends. <laughs> all right, on to something a lot more serious. Over the weekend, thousands of migrants on ships from the North African coast landed on the Italian island of Lampedusa, leaving government officials scrambling to form an emergency plan. A little earlier, I caught up with news correspondent Giles Gibson, who's in Rome, and started by asking him if he could explain what brought this current influx of people and what the conditions on the ground are like. Well, it's very difficult to get an exact picture of why these human trafficking groups decide to send boats exactly when we do. But we believe that Storm Daniel, which caused a lot of destruction in Europe, particularly in Greece, and then crossed the Mediterranean Sea and did the same thing on the North African coast, we believe that Storm Daniel prevented many of these boats run by these human trafficking groups from leaving the North African coast in places like Tunisia. And therefore, once the weather cleared, once the, the sort of conditions got better for the crossing, that there was a big surge of boats heading for Lampedusa. Uh, this is also seasonal uh, throughout the last few years. We've seen 
in September, really a bit of an uptick in the numbers of migrants attempting this crossing. And that's simply because towards the end of the summer, there is a belief that it's, it's going to be easier to make the crossing than it is in the, in the autumn and the winter when numbers tend to sort of dip down a bit. As for conditions on the island itself, of course, with just so many migrants arriving in the space of just a few days, we've seen real pressure on the migrant processing centers on the island. And as a result now, uh, the sort of uh, after effects also being felt here in Rome in terms of uh, Italy's political scene. Speaking of Italy's political scene, the Prime Minister there really staked his popularity on dealing with this migrant issue as they see it. I'm wondering what his reaction has been to Ursula von der Leyen's visit and her promise to bring Europe along with uh, Italy in dealing with this issue. Well, we've seen the Italian Prime Minister, Giorgia Maloney, taking action on the national front as she held a Consiglio dei Ministri, meaning a council of ministers, just in the last few hours or so and announced a series of emergency measures. So, uh, for example, extending the maximum detention time for migrants who are waiting to be repatriated to 18 months. Uh, she is also tasking the Italian military with building new migrant processing centers, specifically saying that those centers should be away from the big cities and towns in low population areas. But she's also been rolling out a campaign to try to put pressure on the European Commission and the other members of the European Union to step in and share some of the burden that is now being placed on Italy with this, this surge in migrants. So we, of course, saw Ursula von der Leyen, the European Commission president, in Lampedusa on Sunday, accompanying the Italian Prime Minister, Giorgia Maloney, to a uh, migrant processing centre. And we have, as a result of that pressure from Giorgia Maloney, seen Ursula von der Leyen really talking about how this is a, a shared challenge. So she said on the, uh, the island of Lampedusa on Sunday that irregular migration is a European challenge and needs a European response. All right, and we'll discuss what that actually means uh, back here in the studio. But for now, thank you, Giles. Uh, Billy Kelleher, um, Georgia Maloney, one of the things that she was looking for was this maritime blockade of Northern Africa that would actually just turn any of those boats or ships back. Is that something, do you think, that Brussels will look on favourably? Well, I would be concerned if that was just the only solution that they came forward with being quite truthful. We can't just turn back people um, back to places that are already in appalling conditions in Libya, Tunisia and the rest of North Africa. I mean, there's a number of things. We, first of all, Europe doesn't have any legal pathways for people to, to come to Europe. Um, and we don't have a quick, rapid assessment of people who are applying for asylum as well. So we have to get those two things right. And we can't just allow it to fall to the southern states uh, of the European Union, Italy, Spain and Greece in particular. Uh, we have to shoulder our responsibilities as well collectively. Uh, we do need more search and rescue. Uh, we certainly need to uh, uh, address the people smuggling. People smuggling is a huge issue here as well. Um, you know, they're coming across in boats and paying huge sums of money. Now, Lampedusa is the closest island to Tunisia, but we've seen them coming from as far away as Libya, trying to make Sicily and southern Italy. Uh, and that is a very hazardous journey. So we've... Why haven't those legal pathways that you talk about, why have they not been established yet? Because Lampedusa and what we see there, the scenes, that's not exactly new um, when no. it comes to what's happening across those southern European states. Yeah. 
like the European Parliament wants to resolve, the Commission wants to resolve, but the member states, the individual countries that make up the European Union don't want to resolve it because let's be honest, you know, when it's a problem for Greece or it's a problem for Italy, the rest of them sit, well, not the rest of them, but a lot of them sit in their hands and we can't get unanimity around this particular issue of addressing legal pathways for migration and a humane, rapid assessment for people who are applying for asylum and burden sharing. Okay, what would Sinn Féin's response be if well, you were in government? I, I think, first of all, it's quite interesting that we're having this discussion straight after we've had the discussion in relation to the sustainable development goals and the fact that we are failing at the moment in reaching those. And one of those things is in relation to climate. And we know that people are, um, you know, being forced into immigration as a result of climate. Another big issue that we know um, that causes immigration is war. And it's not just like uh, war at that moment in time has an absolutely devastating impact on, on people and on people's lives. But it doesn't only at simply at that point. It also does for decades and decades and decades afterwards. And we're seeing the result of that as well. So we do also need to be looking at, at looking at that and being honest in relation to that as well. All right, look, we're going to have to leave that there for now. My thanks to uh, Billy Kelleher and to Marie Farrell for joining us. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms and you can also now find us on Instagram and TikTok. But from all of us here tonight, BMTV, take care. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.,